Welcome back, crime family, for week 70. Hello, I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we're True Crime B&B. Today, Bailey is going to go first with the bad story. Uh-huh. And I believe we both have historical ones this week. Yeah, I'm a little bit oldie, oldie old. In my story, I'm taking us to the turn of the new century in Canada. Which new century? They're all new when they get there. The 1900s. Okay. I'll just say, anything that's not in the early 1900s, I meant the 1800s. Okay? <laughs> Let's just put a blanket statement out there. So, my main character today is going to be a woman named Ada Maria Mills Redpath. She was born April 26, 1842 in Montreal, Canada. Mm-hmm. When she was four years old, her father was elected mayor, and then a year later, so he was the mayor of Montreal, and a year later he ended up dying of typhus because he, as a mayor, with this outbreak, he wanted to go to the clinic himself and help treat these patients because nobody else wanted to. Oh, wow. I just wanted to tell that story because it shows you Ada grew up in a very philanthropic and very caring family. That's what she was raised on. Ada married John Redpath in 1867 when she was 25 years old, and she, at that time, had an old-fashioned prenup written up before they she ever agreed to tie the knot because Whoa, she was buddy. from a wealthy family. And she said in this, I will marry you, John, but anything I inherited from my family is mine and my control. I You don't get to dictate what I do with my funds in the future and all of that, as if I was single, but I'll marry you still. Modern, very good. Yeah, so she was the old-timey feminist. We love mm-hmm. her. And John, in his own right, was also successful. You might recognize the name Redpath because it was the first sugar refinery in Canada. And so that's still a company today, Redpath Sugar. I believe you, but I'm not familiar. I don't know it either, but everybody was like, oh my god, that's where Redpath Sugar is from. And I was like, okay, I guess some people know it. <laughs> <laughs> he was wealthy too. They got married. And in that marriage, they had five children together. They had, and this is in oldest to youngest order. Amy, Peter, John, Harold, and Jocelyn Clifford. He just went by Cliff. I can't imagine why. Jocelyn Clifford. That's his name. Oh, his. I thought there was a sister named Jocelyn and a brother named Clifford. That's why I added the middle name. Because I was like, everybody's going to think I'm talking about. He had the name Jocelyn Clifford and he just went by Cliff because he didn't want to be Jocelyn. Yes. Okay. Amy, being her only daughter, Ada right away wrote up in her will, no matter what, if Amy is to get married... Once again, all of her funds that she inherits from me and her dad is hers and hers alone, and her husband has no control over any of it. So she not only looked out for herself, she looked out for her daughter and knew how the times were on women. Yeah. In the 70s, Ada bought a mansion with her own money in the wealthy portion of Montreal at 1065 Sherbrooke Street, where she would raise her children. And I don't know where her husband John was this whole time. It sounds like he was just traveling Europe and was never home. And it said he was, like, knighted and stuff at some point. So I really have no fucking idea what John was doing this whole time. He's out there living some completely different life. He was a spy. This is the same place she was living when her husband, John, was reported dead in 1884. His cause of death is simply listed as paralysis. What? Which I found a little bit alarming. Because in all of the articles I read, it said he died of paralysis and then was buried in blah 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 cemetery plot. But please tell me they did some of those old-timey pinch tests and stuff to make sure he wasn't just, like, not able to move when they buried him. Something I, has to cause paralysis. You don't just suddenly be maybe paralyzed for horse. no reason. Yeah, I don't know. 
There was no context there. That could be. Leaving Ada with around $5 million in today's money of assets. It's believed that sometime in the mid-1880s, Ada developed a medical condition of some sorts that probably didn't have a name yet, so nobody knows what it was, but she developed really severe eye ulcers, so she had to be basically in her bedroom in the dark all the time, and then she also developed really significant nerve pain in her jaw and arthritis all over her body. All of her joints just hurt to move at all. And so that really just left her bedridden for the last part of her life. So how old was she when she had this thing come on? That sounds Uh, terrible. It sounds mid-40s. So she was born in 42, I believe. So this was in the mid-80s. Wow. So Yeah, so she was still pretty young, but her older children were left to take care of her. Okay. By 1900, she was entirely bed-bound, was no longer leaving the mansion at all, and relied heavily on her daughter, Amy, who was her oldest child, and her youngest son, Jocelyn Clifford, to care for her. At this time, Jocelyn Clifford was attending law school in Montreal. Clifford, on June 11, 1901, had submitted and mailed out his request to take the bar exam. Okay. With that, he had written a check. I guess there was like a fee to of take Of course, it. there's a fee. There's always a fee. There's always a fee. So he was well on his way into this career. So, when on June 13th, two days later, 1901, at around 6 p.m., the oldest son, I know the names are confusing, the oldest son, so the second oldest, Peter, was visiting his mother at her mansion. And he was downstairs when he heard what sounded like gunshots coming from his mother's bedroom. That seems bad. So he rushed upstairs to investigate, and apparently her bedroom door was locked. So he had to break down this bedroom door. When he did, he found Ada, who was 59 at this point, and her youngest child, Jocelyn Clifford Redpath, who was 24, lying on the floor of her bedroom, both dead slash dying from gunshot wounds. Oh boy. Peter claimed that when he entered her bedroom, there was a revolver laying about a foot away from his brother's hand on the floor. Ada had been shot in the back of her head and Clifford in his left temple. Okay. At this point, Ada had already passed away from her injuries, but Cliff was still alive and taken to the hospital. He died later that evening before he ever woke up or was able to explain what had gone wrong in this room. Nobody knew what even happened. They were buried within 48 hours of the incident, and the police were never called to the scene. What? Just swept it under the rug and said, nothing to see here. They just accident. Whoops. Well, I guess that would make the family the scandal of the town. Yeah. So instead of calling the police, the family handled the situation entirely privately, having a coroner, a.k.a. the family physician, just come to the house and do his estimation of what had happened here. And the coroner's inquest officially states, gunshot wounds apparently inflicted by Clifford while unconscious of what he was doing and temporarily insane, owing to an epileptic attack from which he was suffering at the time. That sounds like he's reading a lot into this. And I I don't know a lot about epilepsy, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't sound like any epileptic attack I've ever heard of. Well, that and if he had never been diagnosed with epilepsy prior to this. He had, but only by the doctor who's making the statement. Okay. I just think, keep that in mind though, this doctor is the same one who diagnosed him with the epilepsy to begin with. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The rumors that spread around town, because this was very tight-lipped, but people were talking, along with various preserved letters and diary entries from the Redpath family is still all of the evidence we have to go off of to this day. There are some major speculations. I'm just going to go through the basically the two ones that people, it's either this or that, people seem to think. It's possible that Ada had been in the process of committing suicide because she was in very poor health. At this point, life was just, it was harder to live it than it was. She was in terrible pain. She's in terrible pain. All of her kids had grown up, were successfully into their careers by this point. So it did make sense that she might be at a point where she was going to commit suicide. It seems like a rich woman would have an easier way to do that than to have her hun- her son shoot her in the back of the head. Yeah, especially with a private doctor. You're telling me he couldn't just overdose you on something. I some want poison. all the laudanum. <laughs> yeah, so that's just a lot of people were speculating. Maybe she had the revolver to commit suicide. Cliff somehow walked in on her doing this and accidentally got shot in the process of trying to remove that from her hand. And then she proceeded to shoot herself? In the back of the head. In the back of the head? I think that's not most people's first instinct when they want to shoot themselves in the head. Yeah. And again, this didn't quite add up because, you know, what you just said, back of the head. But also because Ada, earlier in that evening, had sent out dinner party invitations to all of her family and friends in the area to come over later that night. Oh my god. And so all of these people showed up to the house in their Sunday best to come to this dinner party, and then we're told at the door, oh, Ada and Cliff actually died this afternoon from an accident. Oh, my God. And then turned away, and everybody just got sent back home. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? And they're like, sorry, guys. I hope you're doing all right. (laughs) Bye. Yeah. That doesn't sound like something a woman would do that was about to kill herself that night. I would think not. Interesting. I don't believe that I don't believe that theory either. I don't believe any of these theories, to be honest with you. Okay. The second most common theory is... It is possible that the stress preparing for the bar exam, finishing up law school, all of this on Cliff, on top of being his mother's primary caregiver, he's the only one who lived at home anymore with her. All of that stress mounted to a moment of what they called temporary insanity. I mean, we had that case with the architect who this happened to. Got frustrated, killed his mother, and then killed himself. That's a possibility too. You're talking about Joshua Law? Joshua Law, who was also Canadian, wasn't he? Yes, he was. So, again, that whole theory of Cliff may have snapped is probably the most likely theory. Or it could have even been, even if it wasn't a, oh, I'm angry at you because I'm having to spend my youth taking care of you on top of all this other stuff. It could have been a mercy thing. You know, if he did this, shot her in the back of the head. So she probably did not see it coming, at Mm. the very least. Maybe not, but I still just think It seems like a very gruesome way to... Put yeah. someone out of their misery that you love and care for. Yeah. yeah, it still seems like, even if you thought that was going to be a merciful thing to do, mm-hmm. I would think most people would overdose them on sleeping medication or something rather than shoot them in the back of the head. But yeah. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, it's just, who's to say anymore? But those are the two major theories. The family has never discussed the deaths of their brother and mother. However, two months after their deaths, Amy, the oldest had written a letter to one of her sister-in-laws telling her that she had destroyed all of her prior letters between her and her mother and anything that mentioned her mother, correspondence with other people. She had burned them and destroyed the evidence. And so in this letter, Amy was writing to her sister-in-law saying, I recommend you do the same. 
Interesting. So they destroyed all the evidence, but they found the one letter of her saying, I destroyed all the evidence, guys. And I just think that's kind of ironically funny. Wow. So they don't know if Amy writing to her sister-in-law saying, just burn everything that mentions mom. We don't know if that was necessarily related to their deaths, but it's hard to say it wasn't. Because what else would she be burning everything related to her mother about? And also, another side note, Amy went on right after her mom died and married the family physician slash the coroner who came there and said, yep, this must have been an accident because your brother lost his damn mind and had an epileptic attack. That's interesting. I think that's a little spooky wooky. Yeah, it doesn't bode well for Amy's innocence. That she's writing these letters saying, burn everything related to mom and my brother's death. And then also married the guy who said, yep, definitely an accident. Yeah. Yeah, I could see where you're coming from with that. That sounds really suspicious. There's a website to anybody who's interested in this case because there are so many theories I can't cover them all. (laughs) If you go to canadianmysteries.ca and search up the Red Path Murder Mansion, they have a whole series on that. And they have all of the documents that were recovered that Amy tried to get rid of, but we have her diary entries. And a lot of them are very... (laughs) She burned all of the correspondence, but she didn't burn her diaries? She ripped out the pages that mentioned her mother. However, she forgot her mother, Ada, had a diary as well. Oh. So all of those have been recovered and then scanned, and so you can see the digital image of all of those on this website. That's interesting. Is the house still standing? The original house was torn down in 1956, but we do have lots of pictures because they were such a notable family at the time. And it was that time when everybody was starting to photograph things. Yeah. Poor thing. Ugh. She had a really crappy lot in life. And she was such a sweetheart, too. She grew up in such a nice family. and, And if Amy did do this, the fact that Ada put in her will to protect Amy in the future is really fucked up. Yeah. Amy didn't happen to be there when her dad died of paralysis, was she? No, because I think he was still in England doing what he was doing in England at the time. Good grief. What a bizarre story. (laughs) I know. It's weird when you look at old-timey stories and families. It's like, oh, and then they lost their sister in the next year, and then they lost their brother the next year. It's like, God, these lives were always so tragic. My family history is like that. Is it? Yes. my. You mean ours? Oh, yeah, but you don't know it. And that was that just happened back then. People died of tuberculosis. I mean, tuberculosis was, like, running rampant in the world. So, anyway. Yeah, just disease in general was running rampant in the a, world. That's a good point, yes. Whew. Again, we never plan these things, but oddly, <laughs> we were in Arkansas last week, and yep. my story this week is in Arkansas, and you're in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. and I'm also in the early 20th century. Once again, our little psychic powers of story <laughs> collaboration are, are working out. I wonder if it's because we spend so much time together and our phones pick up the same keywords when we go to search. <laughs> Maybe so. I don't search on my phone, though. Weird. I do my research on my computer. I'm excited to hear about 1900s Arkansas, but I'm also a little bit concerned to hear about 1900s Arkansas. <laughs> Well, actually, 1900s Arkansas, early 1900s Arkansas was probably more modern than you might think it would have been. Okay. So, anyway, let me go back to the very beginning. Mm -hmm. This story centers around a woman named 
Clara Laudusky Slade was born on October 14, 1893, in either Conway or Magazine, Arkansas, to Ernest Slade and Hattie Shaver. And she also had a sister named Audrey and a little brother named Earl. Clara was active in her church. She loved teaching Sunday school. She loved working with children. She was known for her great sense of humor, and she also loved writing poetry. Clara's little brother, Earl, was born April 23rd, 1901 in Logan County, Arkansas, so he was almost eight years younger than Clara. Nevertheless, he grew up wanting to be the protector, the caretaker, the good family member. He was fair-minded, hard-working, and kind, but he also had an intensity about him, a serious side that, although he was not great of stature, he grew up as a man to be reckoned with. Hmm. Simon Lucon Blackwell was born on December 4, 1890 in Woodruff, Arkansas, to Joseph Blackwell and Betty Sue Miller, and he had three brothers and four sisters, although three of them died in infancy. Simon was also known as S.L., but I call him Simon throughout this because it's easier for me to say. Okay. Clara and Simon married in February 1909 when she was only 15 and he was 18. One announcement in the Batesville Daily Guard from five days after the wedding date indicated that Simon was actually 17 and Clara was only 14 and that there was an effort being made to annul the marriage due to their ages, but every other article that I saw about it or every other reference said that they were each a year older than that. So I believe she was 15 and he was 18. Well, to be honest, it's not that bad considering most 15-year-olds at the time were marrying like 45-year-olds, so (laughs) I'll take it. Anyway, it was still too young. It was, yeah. But the marriage was not annulled. Simon was a plumber who worked at the aviation warehouse east of Little Rock. Being a plumber in general is fairly physical work, but back in the early 1900s, the pipes were all cast iron, tin-lined lead, and eventually galvanized steel, so they were heavy, and you had to have some strength to do that job. And Simon, at six foot three and 200 pounds, was, as some might say, built like a brick shithouse. <laughs> I mean, he was an intimidating guy. It didn't take long after the wedding that Simon started to become abusive towards the young Clara, who was truly still a child at this time. Three weeks into the wedding, Simon first slapped Clara for losing a small spoon, and the smacking around went on continuously from that point. But at that time in history, a woman had very little recourse. Had she complained to the police or even her friends or family, she most likely would have been told to suck it up and keep it to herself. Women were just expected to simply tolerate abuse, be it mental, physical, or even sexual. So Clara tried to just make the best of her bad situation, and over the years, her husband continued to be cruel towards her. He had been pushing, slapping, pinching, but not punching her. He had not used his fist against Clara yet. In 1911, Clara and Simon had a daughter named Ima Eileen, and in 1919, they had a son named Earl T. And T is T-E-E, so it's not just T. Okay. In the United States, the 18th Amendment was set to take effect on January 17, 1920. This was the National Prohibition of Alcohol, simply known as Prohibition. And although the temperance movement was elated because they thought alcoholism was a moral failing, not a physical addiction and a disease, they thought that simply taking alcohol off the store shelves was going to cause alcoholics to just stop being alcoholics and suddenly become churchgoers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not everyone who drinks is an alcoholic. So this may have been the case for some people where there's no alcohol. Okay, I just don't drink now. But cutting someone off who is an alcoholic, cold turkey, can also send some over the edge. Well, withdrawals are no joke. If you're used to doing that every day, that's... And although reduction in drinking also reduced alcohol-induced violence within society, 
It also left another segment of the population angry and disgruntled and irritable and, like you said, going through withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And I say all of this not because anything I read actually claimed that Simon was an alcoholic, but because Clara and Earl made it clear that Simon's level of violence escalated during the beginning of 1920 to the point where Clara had had quite enough. Clara had left Simon in the beginning of 1920. Good for her. Her 20-year-old brother, Earl Slade, took her in. He rented a larger house, and despite only earning $10 per week working at the Little Rock Broom Factory, he supported himself, Clara, and her two kids. By this time, Simon had started coming over and beating Clara with his fists, which was an escalation of the abuse he had previously been inflicting on her. It's as if losing the control of having her in his home made him even more violent when he did see her. Although general society was still really not on the side of an abused wife, in May 1921, Clara filed for divorce from Simon, which was actually granted to her in July of that year. Wow. Simon had promised Clara $10 a week, provided that she didn't ask him for alimony. There is a record of another suit Clara had filed against Simon that was dismissed in June 1921 before the divorce was finalized on the motion of the plaintiff. So it's not clear exactly what this is, but it seems like that may have been her asking in court for him to give her support. Mm -hmm. And then when he said, I'll give you $10 a week if you drop that, it seems like she may have dropped it at that point before the divorce was final. Okay, so is she trying to, she's raising the kids without him in the home with her and her brother then? Yes. Okay, so that's probably what the alimony was. Right, he didn't want to give her alimony, but he said, I'll voluntarily give you $10 a week if you just drop this. Okay, that. He had promised to give them this $10 a week, and for the first few weeks of their separation, Simon had sent enough money to purchase groceries to feed their two children, but he had discontinued that after several months. He just decided he didn't want to do it anymore, so he just stopped sending money. Although Clara's little brother had taken her in, he hadn't always been fully aware of the level of abuse that his sister had been subject to for over a decade. And over the first year of Clara and her children living with him, Earl started to see that Simon was just a mean, angry man. Mm-hmm. Simon had started to come over to the Slade house just to taunt his ex-wife. Like many men of that time period, he thought it was his right to do whatever he wanted to her and that she had no right to divorce him over it. So, of Mm. course, he's angry about the divorce. Earl had come home many times during 1920 and 1921 to find Clara bruised and in tears after Simon had come by the house to beat her up. By the beginning of July 1921, he was unashamedly hitting her, even in front of her brother Earl. For six more weeks, he continued coming to the house, which was supposed to be Clara's fresh start, her safe place where Simon couldn't hurt her. He wanted to come over there to upset her, to push her around, to intimidate her, and he was beating her with his fists when he would come over. Once Earl actually started to witness firsthand the physical abuse of his sister by her ex-husband, he really started standing up for her. Simon was a man who stood, as I mentioned, six foot three and over 200 pounds, which was a very stout man at that time period. Oh, yeah. He was intimidating, and he had the size advantage over most people. But in comparison, Earl was much smaller. He was five foot eight tall, and 70 pounds lighter than Simon. Phew. So Earl's a small guy. Yeah. I mean, a 130-pound guy is pretty slight. Yeah. But Earl stood up to this bully. When Simon would show up at the house drunk and looking for a fight, Earl would meet him and order him off the property. Simon would then, as a matter of course, threaten to kill the entire family. Naturally. Naturally. (laughs) I mean, that's just his next, how do I terrify my ex-wife more? I'll threaten to kill her children. Ugh. 
Time and again, Earl told Simon to stay away from Clara, but Simon just dismissed the warnings because he arrogantly thought he should just be able to do anything that he wanted to do. On Monday, August 15, 1921, Simon Blackwell had gotten into a fistfight on a streetcar. He had gotten on the car specifically to harass the motorman, whose name was not available. But the motorman apparently had taken the now-single Clara to see a show where they had been seen together by Blackwell. Because she's divorced, she has the right to go out on dates. Of course, Blackwell was enraged that his ex-wife would dare to go on a date with another man, so Blackwell had gone to the streetcar to cause trouble and beat up the motorman to scare him away from seeing Clara again. The man threw him off of the streetcar, and of course, this just fueled Simon's anger. The police had been called after the streetcar incident, but the motorman said that the man was gone and the police did not bother to obtain the name of the man who had attacked him. They're just like, oh, he's gone? It's all over? Okay, bye. Well, why do people put up with this person? Like, I get that his wife, she really is limited on her ability to get away from him. But everybody else, it's not like he was nice to everyone else in the town. Yeah. It seems like nobody liked him. Why are people putting up with him? Because he intimidates them. He's a big, strong guy, and they're afraid he's going to come after them if they don't just turn a blind eye to all the crap. Just don't get involved, yeah. Yeah, exactly. On Tuesday, so the following day after the streetcar incident, August 16th, 1921, Earl had decided to attend a tent revival near 14th and College Streets in Little Rock. And I'm just going to put in a quick explanation here for anybody who's too modern and does not know what a tent revival is. This is a transient religious gathering that literally took place when traveling preachers would throw up a tent and then people would gather in the tent to hear the preacher or a faith healer or sometimes those serpent handlers. Because they come there in hopes of healing and peace and forgiveness and trying to find stronger way of exhibiting their faith. So Earl is obviously a guy who's trying to make something out of his life and he thinks that religion is the way to do it. Okay. Oddly, Earl had gone to the tent revival and he had run into some neighbors there. And as the revival service went on, the same neighbors noticed that Simon Blackwell had also shown up at the same revival. The neighbors noticed that Blackwell saw Earl inside the tent and he just stood there watching him for a while. After apparently determining that Earl was going to stay put and watch the service for a while longer, Blackwell realized that Earl's presence there at the revival probably meant Clara would be at home alone with just the children, so he decided this was the perfect time to go and stir up some shit. Okay, so now we know the real reason he went to the tent revival is to follow Earl there, probably. (laughs) Possibly. I mean, I don't know if he knew that Earl would be there, but I have to believe he wasn't there to get some religion. He doesn't seem like a guy who cares about that. He was carrying the Holy Spirit in him that day. (laughs) Simon Blackwell quietly left the revival and headed over to East 9th Street, where the Slade house was. There, he called Clara out to the door, where he proceeded to grab her, beat her, berate her, call her names, and then belittle her and her brother. Without knowing anything was happening back at his house, Earl Slade also left the tent revival a short time later. When he got back to the house at around 10 p.m., Earl found Clara crying, bruised, and bleeding from her swollen mouth. Clara told Earl that Blackwell had been drunk, showed up at the house, and had beaten her up again. Earl walked out to the front porch to look around for any sign of Blackwell, and he did see him nearby, leaving a drugstore. Blackwell walked straight up to the house and stood on the front sidewalk, cussing at and verbally abusing Clara. Again, brave Earl stood up to the older and stronger Blackwell and told him he needed to leave immediately. Blackwell was not used to being told what to do. Just like you said, people just kind of let it go. Mm -hmm. And he just cussed Earl out. Earl tried to use reason. 
Earl tried to plead for Blackwell to just please go home and leave Clara alone. For more than an hour, Earl attempted to convince Blackwell just to get away from the house, but Blackwell answered with a long string of cuss words and nasty name-calling. Earl repeated over and over that he did not want any trouble, but Blackwell did want trouble. He had already caused a lot of trouble, and he wasn't going to back down in front of a smaller man, and especially not in front of Clara, who was still out on the front porch in case anything happened to Earl. Mm -hmm. Blackwell, at one point, thrust his hand inside of his shirt and said to Earl, I'll blow you in two if you step from the porch. Earl took this threat to mean that Blackwell had a pistol in his shirt, and he knew he needed a weapon to protect his family, because there's no way he was going to take this guy down in hand-to-hand combat. He quickly walked around to the back of the house to the bathroom where he saw a hatchet, and brought it with him back around to the front of the house. Clara had still been petrified and sitting on the front porch swing with her two-year-old son. And when Earl came back around, Clara stood up and started to head inside of the house. Blackwell sprang up, running up onto the porch, and grabbed her by the hair, pulling her backwards. He also grabbed hold of their son and demanded that Clara let go of little Earl, which she was not ever going to do. Blackwell then grabbed Clara around the neck as if to strangle her. Earl came up behind Blackwell and clunked him on the head with the hatchet to get him to let go of Clara. When Blackwell turned, he was still steady, still on his feet, and Earl thought Blackwell was coming after him now. So he hit him three or four times as fast as he could to subdue him, and then finally Blackwell fell. (laughs) Thinking that he had killed the man, Earl went into the house, called the police, told them what had just happened, and asked the police to come and get him. He then went out to wait for the police on the front porch. So Earl, he is such the protector here, but he's also ready to take responsibility for what just happened. Well, it's kind of like the one that we just did with Beverly Carter, also in Little Rock, about, oh, it was an accident, so we freaked out and buried it. No, if this is like legitimately a situation where you had no other choice, this just happened, you do call the police. You do tell them what's going on. That's right. Earl did the right thing. Yeah. When Earl got back out to the front porch, because he went out there to wait for the police, Blackwell was conscious, and he was trying to get up, and threatened again to kill them. When Blackwell again reached up, like he had when he had put his hand into his shirt, Earl still thought he had a pistol, and he hit him one more time to prevent him from getting his gun. Blackwell collapsed again, and Earl went back inside, and this time called again and asked for an ambulance. He's like, this guy's still alive, I think. Come get him. Help him. Whatever. An ambulance did arrive and took Blackwell to the city hospital where doctors began operating on him to try to save his life. And it's obviously 1921, and so medicine wasn't obviously then what it is now, but they could do something for him. They operated on him, saved his life. He was still semi-conscious after being hit with the hatchet six times. He had four severe fractures in his cranium. Both of his eyes had actually been cut, and he lost the left eye. He had a deep gash on his forehead. His nose had been sliced in half and the bones were shattered and they had to be removed. He had deep cuts on his shoulders. He had lost three fingers from his right hand and he had deep cuts on the left hand in addition to broken metacarpals. But old Blackwell, they said, was of a particularly stout constitution and he hung on. He survived Tuesday night. He was even conscious most of Wednesday. Clara told anyone who would listen that her brother was a hero who had saved her life. She said, quote, My brother acted like a man from the heart on out, but I would lots rather have had the trouble settled in courts. But I'm proud of his action and think any boy who would not have done as he did in behalf of his sister is a mighty poor man. Mm -hmm. Earl had been arrested and charged with assault with the intent to kill, and an early newspaper story said that he had been released on $500 bond on Wednesday, the day after the event. 
But a later story then said that he had been held for a couple of weeks and was actually released on August the 30th after Judge Hale decided that Earl had acted in his self-defense and in the defense of his sister Clara and ruled that Earl's attack on Blackwell was justifiable, so the charges were dropped. After the charges were dropped, Earl actually searched out the reporter from the Arkansas Gazette newspaper who had been covering the case. Some of the old articles had bylines if they had a star reporter, but most of them were just, here's the story, and they didn't tell you who wrote it. Mm -hmm. So he found out who had written the articles, and he offered his thanks to the reporter for the fair manner in which he had written about the whole situation. Earl said that his father, who had moved to Oklahoma prior to this happening, had read the news in the Gazette two hours before he had received a telegram from Clara telling their father what had happened. Blackwell did ultimately survive, but obviously with grievous injuries. He lost three fingers, an eye, pretty much all of his nose. But because World War I, the previous decade, had become something of a springboard for facial reconstruction surgery because of the horrific injuries that soldiers had been coming home with, mm -hmm. The medical community probably had the knowledge to at least make rudimentary repairs to his nose, but I couldn't find anything that said whether or not he could have found a doctor to do it or if he could have even paid for it. So I don't know if he ever had his nose reconstructed after that. It does appear that he left Arkansas after he had healed and he later died in Seattle, Washington in November 1952 at the age of 61. Well, he probably had to get out of town because now everybody knew what he'd done. Yeah. Everybody's like, don't marry that guy. <laughs> well, I don't think he probably had women lining up to marry him. To begin with, yeah. Well, he was all chopped up. Well, yeah, and it's not like he got those injuries doing something good, serving the country or something. Right, exactly. And he couldn't probably support anyone very well because now how is he going to do his plumbing job? Yeah, missing fingers that. and missing an eye and his shoulders. I had shoulder surgery two and a half years ago, and it's still not right. So I can't imagine what orthopedic surgery was like in 1921. Yeah, at least you got anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> I think they had ether back then. Maybe. Clara remarried shortly after the events of August to a man named Sam Samples, but they didn't have any children, and Sam died in 1942. I wonder a little bit if maybe Sam might have been the motorman, because the timing was just a couple of months after that event where Blackwell had gone confronted and confronted him in his car. Yeah, he had gone there and caused huh. trouble on the streetcar. But I can't find Sam Samples' occupation, so I don't really know for sure that that was the same guy. Clara herself lived until 1986 when she died at the age of 92. Dang. Clara's son Earl was killed in action in Germany during World War II at the age of 25, having earned nine medals and other decorations for his honorable service. Her daughter Ima Eileen lived to be 88, passing away in 1999. Earl Slade, our hero, yeah. married a woman named Verity in 1929, and he went on to work on oil pipelines. He lived to be 84, dying in 1986. Dang, they have good genes in that family. We have them in our family, too. So obviously the survivor aspect of this story isn't intended to be about Simon Blackwell's survival from his beatdown. Mm -hmm. The reason I chose this is because what Clara went through at the hands of her abusive husband was very common, and I know it's still common now. But it was even more common during this time period for men to knock their wives around, and women really had very little recourse unless their families stepped in and took them back in. Rarely could they escape from the abuse, and Clara was one of the few who were able to and to move on with her life. Besides the start of Prohibition and the escalation of Simon's violence, it's also no accident that Clara left Simon in 1920 because Arkansas had granted women the right to vote in 1918, and in 1920, the 19th Amendment, guaranteeing all American women the right to vote, was ratified. 
So this was a breath of fresh air for women who were finally being given some basic civil rights. Yeah. It stands to reason then that by 1920, all of the U.S. states had become a little bit more cognizant and had made what we used to call wife-beating illegal, even if the criminal justice system normally didn't treat it with a lot of respect. At least it had been criminalized, even if it wasn't necessarily going to be prosecuted a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But it was a huge time in history for women in the United States. But even if women had built up the courage to leave because of abuse, many women around the country at that time didn't even have a legal right to petition for a divorce unless they could prove adultery or that they had been abused. And if the court didn't think the abuse was bad enough, the divorce suit might just be dismissed. But Clara's suit had been granted. So many things came together in a way that made it possible for Clara to get away from Simon Blackwell. But in the heat of the moment, her little brother really came through for her. Mm-hmm. Earl Slade was a very good guy. Earl Slade makes me a little bit verklempt. Yeah. He was a very good guy and a very good brother, and he risked his life and his own future to protect his sister from a terrible man. The fact that the assault with intent charge was dropped, that was just. So the survivors in the story are Clara, her two children, and her brother Earl. But her story is something of a metaphor for the history of women in the United States. Mm -hmm. There are thousands and thousands of Claras who did not have the same results. But the winds of change made a difference. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I would like to hope that Simon did learn his lesson the hard way and that he did not go on to repeat his bad actions again in the future because what a shitty thing to do, to grow up thinking that you just have the right to hit someone smaller and weaker than you. Who raised these people? I'm sure it is one of those things that's passed on. Like his father probably treated his mother like that. On and on, but... Maybe so. It's just wild. What a time for her to live through. I don't think about it that often, but, like, for all of that happening for women and then the prohibition, all of that at once is weird. All within a couple of years of each other. Yeah, I I never, like, put that together, but... Well, and when you think about 1920, when women got universally in the U.S. got the right to vote, Mm -hmm. that wasn't that long ago. And Mm -hmm. so that's why when we look at the things that we're fighting for now as women, it's crazy that all of the changes have happened in 103 years. Yeah. It's not our typical kind of story, but I just was kind of interested in how it interfaced with social change. Did Earl end up having kids with his wife? I do not believe he did. Okay. Too bad. He would have been a good dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm sure he kind of was the dad figure for his niece and nephew, yeah. too. So that is all I have for you today for episode 70. On our little historical journey. Yes, we were. <laughs> Join well, us next week for 20th century South America. <laughs> We're going to Chewy's today. We are celebrating. And so we'll have a margarita for y'all. And I have to have one for Courtney from Evil Pudding because she said she would like to be celebrating with us, but she cannot come because she lives far, far away. Well, Texas. Courtney, we're thinking of you. Always. We'll raise a glass in your honor. We love you. When we think of margaritas, we think of Courtney. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, thank you for being here. And we will see you next week for episode 71. Woohoo! Which is a prime number. And you don't do this to me again. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to you later. Bye. Bye, guys. (laughs) That you'd have to play on the jaw harp. (laughs) (laughs) Trappers and guys wearing beaver tail hats. Yeah, like Not beaver tail. (laughs) Raccoon tail hats. I don't think that beaver tail hats were ever a thing. Beaver tail like hats. The, like Davy Crockett. But it's just really funny now that I'm picturing a beaver tail hat. <laughs> Big flappy thing on the back. So, so John died in seven in eight not seventeen. Eighteen eighty four. John died in ni- nineteen eighty four. <laughs>
damn it, no, he didn't stop lying to me. I have no concept of time. Clifford had sent his check and application to the bar exam people. So he sent his Cliff, am I having a stroke? <laughs> he sent himself to the bar exam. That Amy, that part is part of- Come here, tiny. Come here, loudie. So, there. Damn it, I'm doing it again. Her name is not Sarah. <laughs> if I say Sarah anywhere in this story, it's a lie. And she had left Simon at the beginning of 2020. No, at the beginning of 1920. Wow, she stuck it out for a while. <laughs> we were on a historical journey. 20th century North America. This time we did actually say bye. We're getting better at this. <laughs> it only took 71 episodes for us to learn how to say bye. And a trailer. You what? I'm clean. <laughs> okay. How do you make this stop?